For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt and find more birds this spring. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance access to your populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some Axis Deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com and use promo code CAL for 20% off your first order. From Meat Eater's World News Headquarters in Bozeman, Montana, this is Cal's Week in Review, presented by Steel. Steel products are available only at authorized dealers. For more, go to steeldealers.com. Now, here's your host, Ryan Cal Callahan. A flock of wild peacocks has been living in Omaha, Nebraska for nearly a decade, and no one seems to be able to do anything about it. Thanks to listener Kyle Anderson for sending this one in. Peacocks, which are more properly called peafowl, you know, the cocks are males, the hens are female, peacock, peahen, and they both go, ah, are native to Southeast Asia. As of this recording, Southeast Asia is approximately 8,000 miles away from Omaha, so it's safe to say these birds are not native to the uh, Cornhusker state. And yet, since at least 2016, there have been about 14 peacocks fluttering around a neighborhood just a few blocks away from downtown Omaha. Their origins remain a mystery. Omaha's Henry Dooley Zoo and Aquarium said the peacocks did not come from the zoo. The birds may have come from a local flock of pet peacocks, but the owner has remained conveniently anonymous. Wherever the birds are from, they're causing trouble. Some folks seem to like the large blue and green birds, but other residents told local media that they've been buzzed by peacocks flying close to their heads, and their constant screaming Ah! has become annoying. Maybe the most interesting part of this story is how these peacocks exist in a kind of uh, no-man's-land of wildlife management. Residents have contacted the mayor's hotline, Nebraska Game and Parks, and the Nebraska Humane Society are all no help. If the birds were causing serious damage, that might be a different story, but right now, it sounds like no one is interested in rounding up a flock of non-native wildlife and figuring out where to put them. This hasn't been reported yet by local media, but I think the residents themselves may be able to take matters into their own hands. City code allows landowners to request the authority to remove a non-domestic animal from his or her property. 
the code defines non-domestic animal as, quote, any animal which has reverted to a wild state. I'd say these birds qualify. That's a hot tip for you Omahans as, you know, the sweaty, humid heat of that city seeps into you. If you feel like having like a taxi driver moment, um, may want to reach for the nearest peacock. They are delicious. Trust me. It's just a giant pheasant. Big old booty on them. Uh, In fact, the uh, rear end is so big, the thing that supports that ornate tail fan, that it's a meal of itself. It's awesome. Baby guy. This week, quill pigs, critter roundup, easements, and the mail desk. But first, I'm going to tell you about my week. In my week, well, it's just not nearly as much fun as it was during turkey season, which is why old Seth Morris and I have a fishing date lined up here for this Saturday. It's that time of year where an angler's attention is most easily held on the lakes due to the flood-filled rivers, nightly electric-laden storms rolling into the Bridger Range, rip-open, pummeling, deluge of rainwater. It's violent. It's gorgeous system that is just barely staving off the heat of summer. In other local news, which is, you know, of course important to me, if you can recall, Senate Bill 442 here in the Treasure State, which was a bipartisan bill brought by Mike Lang, a Republican out of Malta, Montana, go Mustangs, that bill, which dealt with divvying up tax revenue from recreational marijuana sales to roads, veterans support, and the state's public access fund called Habitat for Montana, well, that bill, Senate Bill 442, passed with what is known as a supermajority, 130 out of 150 state legislators voted in favor of Senate Bill 442, and then the governor vetoed it, stating that the bill failed to address some of the hows of funding, you know, get from points A to point, you know, down the line, you get it. Well, the governor, Greg Gianforte, and the secretary of state, Christy Jacobson, are now being sued by Montana Wild and Montana Wildlife Federation for a breach of procedure that goes against the Montana state constitution. We shall see if Lazarus will rise again. Now the governor has stated many places, including right here on this podcast, that he is in favor of public access with the caveat that it has local support, such as the big snowy WMA. But it appears, from my perspective, that our state funding mechanism, Habitat for Montana, may not have the governor's support. I'll see if we cannot get the governor and or Christie to give us their point of view on the situation sometime soon. To bring this back to something more fun, the girlfriend and I hit the La Brea Tar Pits, which was a first time for me. Super cool in my opinion. Not all that far from Beverly Hills are bubbling piles of asphalt that trapped invertebrates, plants, mammals, reptiles, and birds, and still occasionally do. On top of that, a super fun thing that I found is these bubbling piles of asphalt, most of which are contained in uh, behind fences, but then there's all these little puddles that uh, are bubbling up on their own, unfenced. And the Los Angelinos put sticks and stuff in them, and uh, I found that very entertaining. Anyway, a couple of things that blew me away outside of the uh, unrestricted asphalt access. Rainbow trout bones were found in the middle of downtown LA. Evidence of a happier time in the city's distant past, suggesting that clean and clear water ran through that part at least enough to support rainbow trout. And then outside of the water lived a 22-pound antelope species called the dwarf pronghorn, which I had never heard of, much to my shame. Also, 
the Hammer Museum and the L.A. County Art Museum are both very much worth a stop on your tour the next time your attendance is required at a wedding. Moving on to the Porcupine Desk. Spring has finally arrived in the Northwest, which can only mean one thing. It's time for porcupines to start falling out of trees. To back up a moment, porcupines are not known for their dexterity or climbing abilities, although they do a lot of it. They're not terrible climbers, but no one's putting a porcupine on the Mount Rushmore of tree rodents. But after a winter of eating nothing but bark, they can't resist young willow buds at the tippy top of willow trees. If you know anything about willow trees, you know that their uppermost branches can barely support a squirrel, much less a 15-pound quill pig. But they try anyway. And research suggests that about a third of them fall to the ground. One paper published in 1990 found serious skeletal injuries in about 35% of porcupines it studied. But a hard landing isn't the only thing porcupines have to worry about. Porcupines are also susceptible to self-quilling. The 30,000 barbed quills that cover their bodies are only loosely attached to their skin. When the animals fall, those quills can dislodge and sink into their own bodies, adding injury to the insult of falling 20 feet from the top of a willow. And I mean, 20 feet's an exaggeration, right? That willow branch would have leaned way over, if you think about it. Anyway, here's where things get really interesting. Research has found that porcupine quills are covered in fatty acids that actually inhibit bacterial growth. The quills are antibiotic. This is counterintuitive because in most other animals, stingers, pokers, and fangs are laced with poison. Why would porcupine quills contain materials that help their attackers recover more quickly? Apparently, porcupines are more concerned about self-quilling in a fall from a willow tree than incapacitating a predator. Researchers believe a porcupine's antibiotic quills are an adaptation to help it heal after falling from a tree and stabbing itself with its own quills. Of course, this doesn't mean that you shouldn't worry about infection after your dog gets whacked by a porcupine. That 1990 study found that the quills only resist some kinds of bacterial growth, and infected wounds from a run-in with a porcupine are not uncommon in wild and domestic animals. What's more, those barbs on the end of porcupine quills allow the quill to dig deeper and deeper into flesh, which could threaten arteries and vital organs if left unattended. If your dog gets a face full of porcupine quills, get to a vet as soon as possible. It's going to be rough on them to try and pull them out yourself and broken quills can burrow even deeper into a dog. I get it. Sometimes you got to do what you got to do. I've done it myself, but a vet can anesthetize your pooch and make sure all the quills get removed so you aren't dealing with complications down the road, which does happen. Big thanks to listener Andrew Whitman for sending in this great porcupine photo. If you want to laugh, look up the Denali National Park and Preserve Facebook page. They posted a great photo of a porcupine at the top of a willow tree doing its darndest to eat those buds without falling. And for the listener, question we'll inevitably get. They do taste great, and to quote the old outfitter, a little greasy, but good. Moving on to the money desk. A North Carolina land appraiser pled guilty last month to swindling American taxpayers out of $1.3 billion, with a B, as part of a land conservation fraud scheme. Walter Terry Douglas Roberts II admitted to inflating the value of the conservation easements, along with the length of his name, upon which the tax deductions were based. Because the federal government wants to encourage landowners to be good stewards of the land, the IRS offers tax deductions when land is placed in a conservation easement. Those tax deductions are based on the property's value, so the higher the value, the greater the tax deduction. Roberts admitted to inflating the value of 18 conservation easements, some by as much as 70%, He faces a maximum penalty of five years in prison. 
Believe it or not, this kind of conservation easement fraud is very common, or at least it was before Congress passed a bill last year cracking down on these schemes. Several investigations by the news outlet ProPublica revealed that aggressive promoters have built a lucrative industry by syndicating these land easement deals. Basically, these folks snatch up idle land, bundle it all together, and hire a shady appraiser, like Mr. Roberts, to inflate the value of the land. These appraisers would claim that land had previously unrecognized developmental value, such as for luxury homes or a solar farm. Then they sold the stakes in these conservation easement deductions to rich investors. These investors reaped huge tax deductions, while the promoters made millions in fees. These con men defrauded taxpayers out of billions of dollars using this strategy, which is why the U.S. Congress included a provision in the latest spending bill designed to end it. The new measure will limit taxpayer deductions to two and a half times their investment, according to ProPublica. That will effectively eliminate the profits that drive syndicated deals while allowing traditional conservation easements to continue. Lobbyists for these conservation schemes stymied this bill for years, but last year Montana Senator Steve Daines figured out a way to resolve this issue. He proposed that the funds generated from eliminating these syndicates be used to pay for a proposal enhancing benefits for disabled police, firefighters, paramedics, and EMTs. That got enough members of Congress on board, and it was signed by President Biden in December. Pay attention here, because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options, like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of six sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor, no waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at twc.health slash meat eater, but you got to use the promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater, okay, at twc.health slash meat eater. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com.
com slash meat eater. For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt and find more birds this spring. Moving on to the dog desk. Six dogs died last week at a wildlife conservation training area in Salt Lake City, prompting the closure of the facility and cancellation of an upcoming event as authorities investigate the cause of the incident. All the dogs were owned by the same individual. He camped with his 13 dogs for eight days at the facility, which is used frequently for training hunting dogs. He noticed his dogs eating a crusty, salty-like layer on some of the grass near the edge of the water at one of the ponds. He called his dogs back, but they soon began showing signs of contamination, such as vomiting and diarrhea. Some of the dogs had to be euthanized, while others died from cardiac arrest, likely caused by kidney or liver failure. Heartbreaking. Investigators with the Utah Division of Water Quality are working to figure out what happened, but so far they don't have any great answers. They've taken water samples from the pond, but they said there was no visual evidence of a harmful algae bloom on the pond. However, they did notice some growth along the edge of the pond they think may contain a bacteria that's been known to harm dogs. The investigators didn't say which kind of bacteria they observed, but it could have been a common water-related bacterial infection called leptospirosis. Leptospirosis is caused by the Leptospira bacteria. Leptospira bacteria, not Leptospira bacteria. Um, That's a spaghetti noodle. And dogs frequently contracted it through exposure to or drinking from rivers, lakes, or streams laden with the Leptospira bacteria. Some infected dogs do not show any signs of illness. Some have a mild and transient illness and recover spontaneously while others develop severe illness and death. According to the American Veterinary Medical Association, in those extreme cases, it causes liver or kidney failure, which is what killed these dogs in Utah. Anyone who's owned a dog knows it's impossible to keep them from drinking from puddles or swimming in ponds, but there are 12-month vaccines that you can get if you're concerned about leptospirosis. If you think your dog has been infected early, an aggressive antibiotic treatment is often effective. It is never, ever any fun to lose a dog. That's what we sign up for as dog owners. But there is something exceptionally cruel about losing a dog when hunting dog season is just a couple of months away. Moving on to the coyote desk. Coyotes rarely attack humans, but when they do, biologists aren't always sure what compels the usual timid canines to target the much larger two-legged prey. Now, a new study published in the Journal of Applied Ecology offers at least one explanation. Researchers tracked and analyzed coyote movement and behavior in Cape Breton Highlands National Park in Nova Scotia and concluded that moose predation is likely a contributing factor to the park's high rate of coyote attacks on humans. We have described a unique ecological system in which a generalist carnivore has expanded its ecological niche to specialize on large prey species, with the unfortunate consequence of also expanding pathways to conflicts with people. You know, basically saying, if they get together in their little coyote pack and they say, we can take down this moose, the next time they look at a human, they're like, not as big as a moose. Now, unfortunate is an understatement. 
There has been only one documented case of a fatal coyote attack in the U.S. and Canada, and it occurred in 2009 in Cape Breton Park. A 19-year-old folk singer from Toronto was attacked and killed by two coyotes while hiking alone on a popular trail. She was soon found by other hikers, but she died from her injuries later that day. Coyote attacks are rare nationwide, but Canis latrans are responsible for 31% of all documented attacks on people by a large carnivore species, the most of any such carnivore. Cape Breton coyotes appear to be particularly aggressive. In recent years, the park has recorded 32 coyote human incidents, including seven independent cases where coyotes bit and injured people. In most environments, coyote attacks occur when they begin to see humans as a source of food, they lose their fear of people and take bolder and bolder steps to secure a slice of leftover pizza. But the situation in Cape Breton turns that story on its head. This 234,000-acre park is sparsely populated by humans, and GPS collar data indicates that the coyote packs have large home ranges. That suggests that the animals aren't congregating around human settlements and eating dog food left out in the yard. What's more, when these researchers analyzed the stable isotopes and whisker samples alongside coyote scat, they found that the canines weren't surviving on human food. Instead, they found something surprising. Moose meat comprised the majority of their diet. Mixing models showed that moose comprised an average of 52.5% of the diets of 28 of the 32 coyotes studied. A 2019 study of coyotes in the same area also found that moose comprised 57% of their diet, with some seasonal frequencies in winter and spring exceeding 70%. Right, is it calving time of year? Like, when are they most likely? That's a big part of these studies. Anyway, coyotes rarely eat moose, but researchers noted that the prey abundance was low in the park, especially the hares and deer that usually comprise the majority of a coyote's diet. So coyotes do what they do best. They adapt and began to prey on North America's largest ungulate. Researchers assumed that most moose consumption resulted from scavenging, but they also found evidence of direct predation. At least one carcass located during winter coyote tracking showed signs of predation. And on other occasions, live, adult moose were observed with fresh wounds consistent with coyote bites, in addition to coyote tracks leading to the moose. Coyotes likely target moose when they get stuck in high snowdrifts, which frequently form in the park. The study's authors speculate that after emerging victorious from a fight with a moose, people didn't seem all that scary anymore. The park also does not allow coyote hunting, and so the animals lost all fear of large prey. If they were learning how to successfully hunt moose, then hunting a person is probably not all that difficult, biologist Seth Newsom told the Wildlife Society. The authors are careful to note that Cape Breton Park is a unique ecological situation. The park's topography, combined with limited hunting and a lack of usual prey species, forced coyotes to target an animal that they would not otherwise tackle. If you live in an area where coyotes and moose overlap, you shouldn't live in fear of being jumped by a 40-pound wild dog. But the researchers still encourage wildlife managers and outdoor recreators to be on the lookout for where these unique circumstances collide. And maybe carry a can of bear spray, even if coyotes are the biggest, meanest carnivores around, best be prepared. Moving on to the mail desk. Listener Sam Shaw wrote in to tell me about a conservation conundrum unfolding in his neck of the woods in Willamette, Oregon. As per usual, Oregonians, you know, I'm going to mispronounce some names here. Willamette, damn it, as I've been told many times, here we go. The Army Corps of Engineers will drop four reservoirs to historically low water levels this spring, summer, and fall. The decision was made as the result of lawsuits from environmental groups and is aimed at helping endangered salmon and steelhead. The reservoirs will be 50 to 120 feet lower than normal, 
This will in some cases transform the reservoirs into rivers to allow spring Chinook to pass through dams. The larger goal is to improve the endangered fish's numbers in the upper Willamette Basin. As you can imagine, this will seriously impact recreation, particularly camping and fishing. Numerous boat ramps will be high, dry, and unusable during summer, and campsites will be a long way from the water. One of these lakes is an amazing kokanee fishery, and another is a trophy walleye and bass lake. Proponents of the move say the temporary loss of recreation is worth it to help struggling salmon species. But Sam, our writer, isn't so sure. He has a biology degree, and he's worked in salmon habitat restoration for about seven years. He told me that he doesn't see a real benefit in reducing the levels of these reservoirs. Quote, salmon have been absent above many of these dams once they were built, except some hatchery smolts planted above that would have a dam hard time, pun intended, making it back up some of these dams that are a couple hundred feet high with no fish ladder. I'm very pro-salmon and salmon habitat restoration, but feel that this action is no magic bullet to bring them back as long as the dams are in place. He says there are plans to implement fish migration strategies to get adult salmon over the dams, but these strategies are several years away. He asked, quote, why wreck one fishery if the plan management goals are not ready to be implemented? It seems like we are going to just destroy a few really amazing fisheries for no reason. The Army Corps Engineers says that lowering the water level will help salmon find the gates that are usually located 100 feet or more below the surface of the reservoir's normal levels. Salmon are surface-oriented, so lowering the water level should encourage salmon to find the current and follow it through those gates. While I understand how lowering the water level might help the salmon this year, I think Sam is right to ask about what the long-term plan will result in. What happens once salmon populations have been restored? Will this be the new normal every summer, or is there a more permanent solution to accommodating salmon migration? It's reasonable to ask anglers to sacrifice a summer or two for the good of another species, but it's another thing to ask them to give up great fisheries altogether. Whatever the case, this is one that folks in Oregon's Willamette Valley should keep a close eye on. That's all I've got for you this week. Thank you so much for listening, and remember to write in, just like Sam did, and let me know what's going on in your neck of the woods. I appreciate it. And I appreciate all you for listening. Once more, check out www.steeldealers.com to find that local knowledgeable steel dealer near you. They're going to get you set up with what you need, and they won't try to send you home with what you don't. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you next week. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins.